Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. This episode starts our new season four with an update and a look back at the series, as well as a re-release of one of my favorite episodes, the conversation with Ed Walter, the former CEO of Host Hotels and Resorts and the current CEO of the Urban Land Institute. So what's happening with the show? First, we've started recordings for season four. Going forward, we will be releasing on the first and third Mondays of every month. Our first new interview will be released on October 7th, and it will be a conversation with Peter Linneman, who will be familiar to most of our audience as the long-term head of the Wharton Real Estate Program and one of the real estate industry's leading economists. Our second release will be an interview with Paul Smithers, the CEO of Innovative Industrial Properties, the public cannabis REIT. Yes, cannabis REIT. Sounds like two words that should maybe not be in the same sentence, but they are. The institutional real estate discipline and the capital markets access of REIT world, as we have seen throughout the podcast series, provides real estate solutions in different niches, nooks, and crannies of the business world, from traditional asset classes like apartments and office building to niche products like data centers, student housing, self-storage, and yes, cannabis. I've been hoping to drill down into the cannabis real estate story for quite a while, so I'm very happy to be having Paul on the show. Let's talk a bit more about the show. First, who's listening in? I know some of you personally, and some of you through email, but that's a small percentage of our listeners. But given all the opportunities of podcast technology, I do know a few things, but not a lot about all of you. What do I know? You come from all over the country, even all over the world. The lion's share of our listeners are in the major U.S. real estate markets, New York, San Francisco, Boston, Los Angeles, Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas, D.C., in some order. But we've had significant number of listeners from abroad, Canada, Japan, the U.K., Australia, Germany, Denmark, and others. We know that most of you, when listening, stick through the whole episode, which I really appreciate since these are long, not edited down to highlight conversations. Some people have pushed us to edit down to shorter episodes, but somehow the longer conversations seem to develop threads and wisdom that we're not comfortable editing down. We're getting close to about 300,000 downloads through the course of the series, which makes us a small podcast in podcast land, but in our space, I think, huge. As you might have heard me say, if you Google real estate podcast, you'll find a lot of shows that cater either to tips to finding success as a real estate agent or how to get rich quick in flipping homes or investing in syndications. There's lots of advice out there in podcast land on those subjects, but only a few shows like ours that dig deep into the world of institutional real estate. I think our show is pretty distilled, focused, and a product for a niche, elite, educated, focused audience, which is you guys, versus our trying to hit some popular mass market. We do not have statistics on the demographics of our audience, but based on email feedback, I'm guessing that about half to two-thirds of you are in the earliest years of your career. I have a little genie in the back of my head, which they call an avatar in the digital world, when I do the interviews thinking what might be most interesting and good wisdom for younger people listening in who are seeking inspiration and planning careers in real estate. We also have lots of listeners who are leaders in the business, and I'm flattered by your listening in. I think of it as leaders gaining inspiration from other leaders, and that many of you are sharing the podcast with your teams to give them lessons and inspirations. Thank you, thank you. 
Hosting the podcast has been one of the highlights of my career, and I thank you, the listeners, the amazing guests, and the sponsors for helping me make this happen. For me, there are interchanges in literally every one of the interviews that have blown my mind and up my game as a podcast interview, a search professional, and a leader at Terra Search Partners, a real estate professional, and, and just as a person. The lessons that I've learned rattle in my head and come, as my friends will tell you, too often into my conversation, thinking and brainstorming with clients, colleagues, friends, and family literally every day. I'm pretty sure, given the feedback that I've received from many of you all, that you've gotten to share in some of those moments and insights. That is clearly the mission and intention of Leading Voices. One other deep-down admission, I am a long-frustrated guitar player. With the theme music for Leading Voices, I now have hundreds of thousands of downloads of my noodling, which is just one chord, on my guitar. So thank you to the audience for that part of your listening. I also want to give a shout out to the sponsor of our first season and co-creator of the podcast, ULI, and to the sponsor of season three, JLL. We're making season four work without a sponsor, so that calls for an extra thanks to my colleagues and team at Terra Search Partners, without whom I could not put in the resources and time to make this happen. So without the help and guidance that I've received from past sponsors, I will continue to look to you, the listeners, for feedback on the podcast from guest curation, new types of episodes, and comments, questions, thoughts, and feedback on the conversations. I'm hoping that maybe in season four, we can be a bit more relaxed, sometimes more provocative, and sometimes drill down into new areas and themes like cannabis, for example, that might not always be interesting to a corporate sponsor. I'm always referring friends and colleagues to specific episodes and specific moments that I found impactful. I thought that I would share some of my highlights and headlines from the series right now. If any of these resonate, listen again and please pass them on to your friends and colleagues. All of the conversations feel like my babies, so no offense to any guests I'm not mentioning in this highlight reel, please. Here are some of my faves. The final episode in Season 3 was with Larry Webb, the CEO of the New Home Company. One of the highlights in the Larry Webb episode was our discussion around his company mission statement that home building is a noble enterprise. I love the audacity and the call to action of the word noble. There's a lot of room for cynicism around the use of that word in a business context, but I take it instead as a challenge to find the nobility for that which we do in our day jobs. One of the leading voices themes is that real estate is a business that's hugely impactful on the world, especially as our industry impacts issues of climate change, urbanization, gentrification, and change to our cities, and even income inequality. We have an effect on those things. We really do. The call to nobility means that we take that responsibility seriously. Let's be financially successful in our businesses, but let's create environments in a way that has a net positive out there in the world. Several of our guests, I'm remembering both Jonathan Rose and Scott Cowan, both from season one of the podcast, cited the word tikkun olam, the Hebrew word for repair the world, and very relevant to how we in the real estate industry affect our planet. A second related episode was with Bobby Turner, who made the case for a real estate enterprise having a double bottom line, both for profit and for purpose. Bobby was the most articulate and one of the fastest thinking people I've ever had a conversation with. Listen in. It was a great episode. But we've heard similar messages from Daryl Carter, Jonathan Rose, Ron Terwilliger, Jane Graff, Clyde Holland, and others on housing affordability. This is one of the issues of our time. It's been easy for our industry to say, not my problem, 
but the public conversations are now forcing our industry to address these topics. My conversation with Lisa Picard, CEO of EQ Office, the company formerly known as Equity Office, blew me away. A motive, vulnerable, intelligent, and an innovator who wants to change how we experience the office environment. It was a great conversation and one of the many inspirations to young women finding no limits in how far they could take their careers. Other women on the series have also blown me away. Hilda Perez Alvarado from JLL articulated her passion and strategic knowledge in the global hospitality business. That conversation jumped off the page for me. I think one of my favorite moments in the whole podcast series and my most often recommended podcast is with Marianne Tai from CBRE, who told her of her introduction to the real estate world while on a Vaporetto in Venice in her mid-30s, and her ascension within 10 years to being one of the top brokers in New York City. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Holy cow. Several CEOs so impressed me with their company's absolute focus on a mission to a quality that had not previously existed in their sector. Bill Bayless from American Campus Communities talked about articulating a mission for a business that had not yet existed, high-service student housing, in a dorm room at the University of Texas down the hall from the dorm room where Michael Dell created his company. Now Disney, the company that companies emulate for their training programs, partners with Bill's company for building and manage their own training environments. And Keith Oden, co-founder of Camden Property Trust, tells how his company was founded with the goal of being a great place to work and how they've now been in the Fortune 100 best places to work for some 12, 13, 14 years running. That feat is like getting a camel through the head of a pin. Back to mission and nobility. I thought that the headlines of leading voices might be the secrets to getting rich and creating successful real estate companies. But each leader has spoken instead about their secret sauce on the focus of creating a great company that makes a difference. I do believe that financial success is one of the byproducts and not the sole goal of great companies. And we've heard it time and time again on the podcast. We've traveled through the multifamily universe on the podcast, both on the affordable housing side and on the conventional side. We've had primers on the development of the modern apartment business from Keith Oden, Ron Tuilliger, Fred Tuami, and others. The real estate business and its history has been a fascination of mine, and you've heard some of that here. My dad is now in his late 80s, and I spent a lot of time thinking about the meaning of work past the traditional retirement age. I think about work keeping one young and acute. We've had discussions with several octogenarians. Most recently, my good friend and one of my career inspirations, John Stewart, here in San Francisco, and also my new friend, Gene Golub, in Chicago. I've had conversations with household real estate names and legends, some of them not quite octogenarians, but close to it, Sam Zell, Gerald Hines, and Art Gensler. They're all riding high well after people are supposed to have retired. One of my favorite conversations was with Chip Conley, the hotelier and author and Airbnb executive and coach, and other of those people that I sat side by side with and could not believe that we were trading a conversation. With many of these folks, I feel that I'm in the presence of a kind of super being, and Chip is one of them. Listen in on our conversation, and also listen to his recent podcast interview on the Tim Ferriss Show for a deeper dive with Chip far outside of our more career-oriented discussion. A few others. Listen to the conversation with John Ram, the head of planning for the city of San Francisco. I asked him if his, this back-to-the-city urbanization thing might be a trend or if it's permanent. I loved his answer. He said the course of human history has been the history of urbanization. The era of sprawl was only a 30-year anomaly, not the current allure of the city. 
Of course that's the truth. Listen to the conversation with Cedric Bobo about using the discipline of real estate to train inner-city kids in financial literacy. Listen to Janet Marie Smith about building timeless stadiums or Andres Duwani about founding the new urbanism movement. Or listen to Ed Walter, which you're about to do in a few minutes, about bringing the skill set from running host Marriott to leading the Urban Land Institute. I can keep going since, again, I've grown through each of the conversations in literally each of these episodes. For those listeners who have time for podcasts outside of Leading Voices, I most highly recommend The Daily from The New York Times, which is how I usually start my day. They do an amazing job of using the podcast medium to deep dive on one story for 20-some minutes each day, which goes far beyond what's achievable in the newspaper. Make it part of your daily diet. So, we're starting Season 4 with its first release on October 7th. As I said, the first guest will be Peter Linneman, and then two weeks later, Paul Smithers, the CEO of The Cannabis REIT. We will continue to explore through Season 4 the stories of leaders from throughout the real estate business in different nooks and crannies, both legends and less knowns, and hopefully people from all over the space culturally and geographically. We will probably do some deep dive interviews with people sometimes less about their career journeys than to explore their business and contribution to the development of the built environment. Okay, that's a catch up on the conversation. Now stay tuned for a replay of my conversation earlier this year with Ed Walter, the CEO of the Urban Land Institute. I love the conversation with Ed, especially his ability to bring the experience and lessons learned from leading host hotels to his role as CEO of ULI. I'm recording this introduction the week before the ULI fall meeting in Washington, D.C. So for those of you hearing this episode for the first time, it will have resonance to your attending the industry event. Please keep enjoying the series. Try out one of the episodes that you might have missed. The whole library is available on the Apple Podcast Store and on our website at leadingvoicespodcast.com. Please send me feedback on what you do like, don't like, ideas for guests, or other things you'd love to hear or feedback on the show. Contact me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Today, I have the great pleasure to talk to Ed Walter, who is the chief executive officer of the Urban Land Institute and has a long and storied career in the commercial real estate industry, most notably as the CEO of Host Marriott. So we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Ed, just to and these stories are, and these conversations are stories of leaders' leadership journeys, how they got to where they got to and how they've managed their career and what their career has meant. I want to end with, start with a punchline, though, for a moment and kind of talk a little bit about ULI, what brought you to ULI and what, what the major opportunities and challenges are. And then we'll go into your career and probably come back to ULI at the end. Great. Well, that sounds great, Matt. It's great to have the opportunity to join you here today. Um, you know, as you described, I've been in the real estate business for nearly 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've had a fairly long and varied career throughout that. But I, I, when, when the opportunity came to be involved with ULI, I just realized that it was such a special organization. It was such a unique opportunity to help a an organization that was at an interesting inflection point where it it had completed a strategic plan, but it needed a day-to-day leader to help make that happen. And so it was an, it's an interesting combination of both a management challenge in leading that change at the same point that because of what the organization focuses on, it, it's really, it's a, a tremendous opportunity to impact our overall built environment. So you put those two things together, it was a, a, a proposition I couldn't refuse. 
Uh-huh. And it's interesting just to think about the balance of the leader part, the manager part, and you're a very professional manager, and then think about the impact part and to what degree you are a symbol or a spokesperson for the industry thinking through where we should be making an impact. Any comment on that balance in your role? I think they're both equally important, although I would probably say that if if I had to guess at which one becomes more important, it's the one that relates to the management of ULI itself. Mm-hmm. You know, we are we have over 42,000 members. There are plenty of uh, incredibly accomplished executives and leaders that are part of ULI that can help be a spokesman for what we do. Mm-hmm. I can provide some focus to those conversations and some leadership around some of those issues. But we have a lot of folks that can speak for the industry and for ULI. I think where my biggest impact comes it is ultimately in organizing our efforts in a way where the impact that the organization should have becomes apparent to everybody associated with it. Makes total sense. And we, we will talk about that in the conversation as a long-term supporter, participant in ULI and caring so much about the industry and our industry's status in the economy, our status in the world, I think ULI plays a really major role in framing that conversation. I would agree. So let's start with the Ed Walter story. Where did you grow up? And I knew one day as you're growing up, you're planning to become a CEO of a major hotel company that didn't yet exist. But uh, tell me about your early days. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh-huh. And uh, my, actually, my, my family, some of my family is still there. But uh, when my mother passed away a few years ago, she had been in the same house for nearly 60 years. So I, had, I was blessed with one of those permanent type childhoods where there was always a home to go back to. And then after graduating from high school, I went to Colgate University in upstate New York which you know, was really a wonderful experience, was exactly what I was looking for from a college perspective, and, uh, and then, have, then went on to graduate school from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Colgate has a lot of real estate. People in the real estate business came from Colgate. There's half a dozen leaders of around our age who I know, maybe 10 years younger, actually, who have become leaders in the business. I, I would agree with you. you know, I'd say that the university itself, is, even though it doesn't have a finance program, nor does it have a real estate program, it does encourage entrepreneurial thinking. It does, you know, I think it gives its students a very diversified, true, a, a kind of a classic liberal arts background. And when you think about what drives success in the real estate business, we, we really, to be successful in our business, I think you need to have a variety of talents. You, know, you're, you cannot be narrowly focused in the real estate business and be successful. And so that type of background, that type of an educational background I, is good preparation for going into the real estate world. And then, of course, many of us, I assume, have supplemented that undergrad experience with either a business degree or a law degree. Absolutely true. And I totally agree with the career advice of not being narrowly focused. You can do a job in real estate, but to be a leader, you have to have that breadth of of understanding and breadth of interest. So then you went on to law school. So why law school and why not become a lawyer? Well, at the point in time that I was making a decision about whether to go to law school or business school, I, I truly was I was really having some difficulty concluding which was the best path. And then somewhat simplistically concluded that 
I could always go into business if I went to law school, but I obviously couldn't become a lawyer if I went to business school, and so decided to pursue law. But when I got down here in Washington uh, to go to Georgetown, I worked almost the entire time that I was in law school for a law firm. And at that point in time, they were very active in what were the hot areas of the profession, energy and environmental law. And while that may have been a very hot area in the profession, I found it deathly boring. Mm -hmm. So I very quickly began to look for other elements of, of real estate and other elements of activity, business activity, that might be of greater interest. And I started to take every real estate class that I could take at Georgetown. And that we had some great you know, attorneys who were practicing attorneys who taught courses on land finance. I, had a, I remember taking a seminar that dealt with sort of more advanced real estate financing techniques. And I just realized that it was something that I was fascinated by. So midway through my third year in law school, I ended up getting an interview with a local company called DRG Financial that was in the apartment finance and brokerage business and, uh, and, and ended up joining them in January of 1980. So for those of us that were around at that point in time, that was right about the time that the prime interest rate was around 18 or 19 percent. Right. So a very different lending environment and interest rate environment from what we look at today. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny. So you and I graduated right around the same time. And about three years after that, I got my first home loan and I took a 13 and 3 eighths fixed interest rate because I thought they were as low as they'd ever go. Well, you did way better than I did because <laughs> I did the same thing. I bought a condo in Washington in 82 <clears throat> and my interest rate was 16 and 5 eighths. Oh, my God. I refinanced a year or two later to about 12 and a half, so more where you were, and was ecstatic at the savings that I was generating in terms of my monthly payment. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Now, now what I really wish is that I was the one lending at those rates and that that loan would have been fixed instead of repaid, easily repaid. So you stayed in the apartment business for a while. Talk about your pathway through that business. I actually look at the first 10 to 12 years of my career as being incredibly important to what came after that. And the reason why I say that, and this is oftentimes is something I, when I talk to students about where to go next or how to think about their career, it's a, an element of what my discussion re revolves around. And that is the fact that I started with DRG doing apartment brokerage and apartment finance. And then I went from them to a real estate syndicator called Franklin Realty that was based in Philly, where I bought new or existing apartment complexes. And then they were syndicated by our syndication branch. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that particular job, I actually was out doing some syndication work myself. So getting an opportunity to do some marketing. I moved from there to Trammell Crow. So we're talking about the late 80s. And had an opportunity to work with Crow both in the Philadelphia market and then ultimately down in the Orlando market. From there, I joined a company that's uh, also still in existence called Zom that's based in Orlando. And for Zom, I did a combination of activities. I helped them do some affordable housing on some land that they owned. Uh, they were a they were a Dutch-based firm that raised capital into invest generally in Florida, and they had started by investing in land. And so they, the, the founder of the firm had been somebody that had been active in the oil trading business, and he ultimately decided to step out of that and was a very successful investor in Florida. 
Mm-hmm. So in addition to doing the affordable housing work, I also had an ch- opportunity to do a fair amount of land development activity. Not as much on the planning side, but more on the marketing side. But when I sort of turn around and look at that, it, ultimately, as I got near the end of 1992, um, I had really had a chance to be in brokerage, finance, acquisitions of both types, development, develop, or aggressive redevelopment in the context of some of the things I did with Crow. And then I got exposure to the land development business too. And so what, what I found with that type of a background is that when I went on to different things after that, there was very rarely a conversation around an element of the business that I wasn't familiar with the function or with the challenge. So I, I, didn't, I certainly didn't know all the answers Mm-hmm. But I at least had a, a basis upon which to ask reasonably intelligent questions. You know, it's interesting. First, when I interview people in my day job as a recruiter, I wind up getting stuck and spend too much time in people's early years, which actually I've been accused of doing in the podcast as well. But I have the belief that if you just interview someone from what, for what they're doing now, it's not relevant. You have to understand where they came from, understand what that journey was and understand the trajectory, right? You can't, you can't get there without understanding that. The thing you're missing, though, in what you're talking about or you miss at the time is the meaning of those varied experiences because you don't know where they're leading. No, that's right. That's right. Well, and, and the other thing, too, is in our, you know, the, our business has cycles. Each cycle has been a little bit different, but you don't have to look at too many charts to understand that there are cycles. And part of the art to being successful in this business is having the confidence to put money at work at the right time. Mm -hmm. And having the benefit of, of seeing things over a period of time, seeing it from a variety of different angles, I just, I, I think that that sort of message or that sort of benefit is useful to somebody in their career, certainly in our business, but most likely in other businesses too. I absolutely agree. So how did that move over to the hospitality business? One of my partners at, at Crow, who had left before I did, had come up to Washington and was a partner with Terry Golden, who actually had been the original CEO of Crow Residential. Right. And Chris Nassetta, those two gentlemen had worked together at Car Properties in Washington, and they had split off probably around 1991 or two and had mm-hmm. formed a company called Bailey Realty, which was really an early version of some of the opportunity funds that existed. They didn't necessarily go out and raise a fund per se, but they were looking at doing different types of transactions and attracting capital in order to make those transactions work. So Bruce Faraday had joined them. And after they completed their first acquisition of a portfolio of loans from Chase Manhattan Bank, they were looking for somebody to help reconstruct that portfolio. It was all tax exempt debt. And I had some experience with that earlier in my career. And so I ended up talking to them and then ultimately making the decision to move back, move from Orlando back up to Washington and you know, I'd, I'd have to say that worked out pretty well in the long run. So getting an opportunity to work with Chris and Terry was certainly critical to everything that came next. And we had a great time with that company. Um, but ultimately, the, when Steve Bolenbach left Host to go to Disney, because that was after the Marriott, when, split, when Marriott Corp had split into Marriott International and Host Marriott, 
Steve had gone, it was, Terry and Chris were brought in to be the CEO and COO of Host. So I stayed behind to run Bailey for a year to finish up a couple of large transactions that we had underway. And then I left Bailey and joined Chris and Terry at, at Host in, the, in October of 96. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately the, the traction to coming up here was in recognizing the level of disruption that existed in the business. You know, so this is when the Resolution Trust Corporation was being formed. This is when the Fed was pushing banks to unload real estate. Right. I just knew after talking with Chris and Terry and Bruce that there was a, I felt like there was a tremendous opportunity to do larger and probably more complex deals like the portfolio that we bought from Chase, like a portfolio that we bought from Mutual Benefit, and from a number of other lenders that had just run into problems because of the severity of the downturn that was experienced in the 89 to 91 timeframe. So you know, the situation at Zom was actually quite attractive, but the reality was is that the opportunity to come up here seemed even more attractive at the time. And as I mentioned before, I think it, it worked out just fine. Oh, I think it did, and it's it's Ed it's Ed two but three is kind of what we're going to spend more time talking about. Host and help us think a little bit, just again for context of what Host was and what Marriott was. And I, you weren't there at that inception, but you were there after it split. But for those listeners who don't know the context of that change, it was a big deal back then. No, it really was. And, and, and frankly, what happened in 93 when that split occurred, I, I, in some ways set a large part of the hotel business on a path that it had only partially been on before then. So Marriott, had, Marriott Corp had generally owned all of their full service hotels and had franchised but the probably some, but not all of the select service hotels that were involved with the brand. Uh-huh. They had been a prolific syndicator kind of in the later stages. They actually took off as a syndicator more after the 1986 tax act, which shut down most of that rest of that industry because they were the one that when you talk to somebody in the syndication business after the 1986 tax act, what you needed to find was a, a corporation that could use the losses, and then you had investors who wanted income. And that was not a traditional syndication format pre-86, but Marriott fit that bill you know, perfectly. And so they were doing some of the largest fundraisings in the industry from 86 through probably about 89 or 90. Mm-hmm. But as they got into 92, they were finding that their ability to expand further was being constrained by their ability to borrow more at more debt. And so they ultimately, Steve Ballenbach has been credited with the idea that the best way to enhance the growth potential of the company was to separate the real estate from the franchise and management arm. Mm-hmm. And so the split that actually occurred in 93 was to create Marriott International, which was where the bulk of the people and where the, where the bulk of the value sat. And then the hotels that they owned, and I forget the exact number, but call it around 60 or 70, and all of their debt went into a company that was then called Host Marriott. And then you joined that a couple years later. So I joined that a couple years later. 
and so my job was actually to restructure over $4 billion worth of part of those partnerships that I was referring to, because most of them were in a situation where they were over levered. Uh-huh. So we needed to address the maturing debt and, and restructure the partnership in a way that would allow it to continue to move forward successfully. And, and then we made the decision as a, as, a, as a company at Host Marriott to convert into a real estate investment trust. And so I had the fun job of, of leading that effort from the business side um, to, and which sounds like it's a simple thing. If you describe what's actually occurring, people just say, well, your tax guy will say you just check a box and you become a REIT. Mm-hmm. The reality was, is especially because we were a hotel company, we needed to actually create leases that sat between, we had to separate essentially the operation of the hotel from the ownership of the hotel. And that simple fact required us to completely restructure the entire firm. We did a spin out of another entity in order to help accomplish that, had to restructure all of our debt. And that certainly in, in the grand scheme of things was one of the most fascinating deals I ever worked on. Well, I can only imagine. And it's still in the context of overhang of debt, over leverage, and some troubles in the real estate business. So you, it sounds like from the description, you were coming up with the optimal structure and the structure that's continued in the hotel business, but that structure was invented in part to solve a problem, not just to create growth. I, I, would, agree, I, I would agree. Now, I would say that the leverage level that, that we started with at Host Marriott, even before I got there, was not excessive, but it was high in the context of how the rating agencies and the investment-grade bond world looked at what was appropriate for a company like Marriott Corp. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the debt structure was more constraining for them than it was for us. But having said that, when, we, when the split occurred, ho- the company was no longer investment-grade rated. So we had become a high-yield credit mm-hmm. and were until you know, probably around 2000. 10 or two, no, 2011 or 2012. Mm-hmm. And one thing I'm hearing a bunch of in your voice is that you went to law school. <laughs> it probably came in handy at that point in your career. Yeah, I, I would say that while there are certain times I wish that uh, I would have benefited from having some business school classes, I've always felt that law school is a great preparation for being in the real estate business. Absolutely. If you're going to do that kind of structuring. So, um, Talk about your transition through that company from maybe finance into the CEO. And then we'll also talk about the evolution of that company and what that's meant for the industry. Sure. In some ways, what happened at Host was not dissimilar to what happened to me the first dozen years of my career. I came in as a senior vice president of acquisitions with with the role or the the task of restructuring all of those partnerships. And, and, beca- and that ultimately led into the role of helping us become a REIT. And in the, in the context of that, I became our treasurer. When Terry Golden retired in 99 and Chris Nassetta became CEO, I then also, I continued to be our treasurer, but I also took over our head of our asset management uh, element of the company. So I got a lot of exposure to hotel operations through that role. In 2003, we shifted some roles around, and I, and I then became our chief financial officer. 
and and then my focus was really you know was the traditional ones accounting tax finance inv and investor relations and, and, and that became what my focus was for the next four years mm -hmm. as part of that really all the way through that experience for a variety of reasons I was always very close to everything we were doing on the strategy side and in fact in, even in the role of treasurer I, I tended to be in working with either Chris or Terry I tended to be the chief day-to-day -day lead on whatever efforts we were making on the strategic side so I think by virtue of having had the opportunity to play that many roles within the company mm -hmm. when Chris made the exciting decision to go join Hilton as their CEO I, I feel like the board was fairly comfortable in allowing offering me the opportunity to take over as chief as a chief executive officer uh -huh. and let me ask a question while you're having the functional role of CFO or the functional role of treasury and asset management, when you said you always were the person they would go to for strategy, that's a pretty general word. So what does that really mean in terms of substance of those things that you did during that period of time? You know, the role as an asset manager or the role as treasurer around, in my mind, or there's a strategic element to that from the standpoint of thinking through what your long-term objectives are in each of those specific areas. Mm -hmm. But above and beyond that, it, the, the real key that I was trying to refer to there is thinking more about what our overall corporate strategy should be. So mm -hmm. when we first started as a company, all we, all we owned were Marriott hotels. Mm -hmm. And over the years that Chris and I were both there and then after Chris left, we slowly but surely morphed to where the portfolio, that prior to the Starwood Marriott merger a few years ago, uh -huh. we had, through a variety of growth and disposition, had reduced the Marriott exposure to less than 50% of the portfolio. Uh -huh. So the decisions around what that portfolio mix should be, what were the markets that we should be in, what were, the, what were the segments of our business in terms of luxury or up or upscale or something else that we should be in? All of that was fell within that strategic analysis piece to just to help decide what was going to make the most sense for the company in the long run to enable us to be successful. Mm -hmm. I, I would also think that um, if you only have one brand who you're beholden to and have a relationship and share a name with, that that may bring some level of myopic thinking about what's what what's realistic in the world, what's available in the world, and probably once you start owning with other brands and flags, then the world opens up and possibilities can become more limitless in terms of perspectives and approach to the business. Here, there's a lot of truth in what you just said. I mean, the reality is, is we found when we. We did a $4 billion deal with Starwood in 2005. It closed in 2006. And we were fairly confident based upon what we had seen in terms of the lessons we had learned from Hyatt and from others in some of our earlier transactions. We were fairly confident that getting an opportunity to see how Starwood approached the business would be beneficial from the standpoint of all of our Marriott hotels not because we were going to share trade secrets from one brand to the next, but we would be able to understand how they looked at different problems mm -hmm. and then take the best of those solutions and apply them to our other properties and our other brands. Flip side was also true. And we were able, there was a number of things that 
we were seeing happen at our Marriott hotels around efficiency and things like that, that we were able to carry to our Starwood brand. And so we ultimately were able to outperform on the margin side, really in both sides of the portfolio, because we had that dual perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And help me understand, I think of a hotel company, of, or the average listener will think of hotel company and they think of the marriage between ownership and operations. And in your case, it's just ownership. There's not a ton of people, but there's a ton of hotels. So kind of help think about, just paint the picture of what that looks like. Yeah, you you raise a great point there because we uniformly as a company would show up and, you know, oftentimes first, but sometimes certainly in the top five in terms of what the value of the company was based upon the number of employees that we had, because Mm -hmm. typically host would have, depending upon how many assets we owned and in what phase of the company we were talking about, we might've been plus or plus or minus 200 employees with a company that oftentimes was on a TEV basis was worth more than $20 billion. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say, sort of going back in some ways to my comments about the fact that the split that was orchestrated in 93 had a big impact on the business. Mm-hmm. Part of what we saw from that was by having a separate group of asset managers. So that was the group that I was describing previously that right. I headed for the time. Having that separate group of asset managers to focus on the operations of the hotel at First blush, I think there was a perception that that was duplicative to the efforts of the more senior people at Marriott that were overseeing the hotels or at the other brands that we would have acquired later. But the reality is, is that we found that we brought a different perspective, a lot more discipline around capital spending, but a different perspective and in a lot of ways, a longer term perspective than what the operator brought, because we were not caught up in the day-to-day problems of running the hotel. We were focused more just on how could we did want to compare operations right. and understand how one hotel was doing to another, but we were looking for that opportunity to how could we improve value. And so if you looked at our and both our returns and Marriott returns that initial decade after the split, we both outperformed. And I think it was in a large part due to the fact that that creative tension that came about because of that split enabled us to both generate the right type of returns for our, our very different set of investors. If you watch what happened in the, you know, the, the 20 years after that, you saw Starwood do a version of that split by virtue of the fact that they sold about half their assets to us in 05. And of course, if you see what happened with Park and with Hilton, uh, a couple of years ago, they did the same sort of a thing by splitting the real estate from the uh, from the operator and the franchise company. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny. You also make the case generally for the concept of asset management within the commercial real estate business. And we see that tension all the time where asset managers, you know, the job is a strategic job. Just to, if you put one word on it, and if they delve into too much operational thinking then they're losing the value that they bring. And if the operations people said they could do both, we can handle the granular and we can handle strategy at the same time, they could contribute to strategy. But if they're solely responsible, it all usually gets lost. 
Well, the, I think the challenge with that, and we're in, I'm on the board of Avalon Bay, and, and they have really begun to build out their asset management organization because I think they recognize the same benefits that we saw at Host. The, the day-to-day challenges of running a piece of real estate, especially a hotel, are so all-encompassing that I think it's really difficult. It takes a very unique leader who can vote, who can do that and truly focus on the long term. I'm not saying that our best GMs weren't thinking about the long term because they are, but their ability to actually segment the time and dig in and really be and have a chance to truly study that is more limited. When we have an asset manager, they are not caught up in who's going to be who's going to fill this position or is this event being run smoothly and oh by the way, I need to be downstairs to say hello to the CEO who's arriving, they can sit back and be a little bit more thoughtful and contemplative of what could change this property in the long run. How is this property doing against others? Should I be challenging my taxes? Is there some change I can make to reduce my insurance? You know, all those types of issues and all of those the decisions around all those types of issues can ultimately lead to meaningful improvements in net operating income or in the perception of the quality of the asset which ultimately lead to a change in value. Well, totally true. So talk through the changes in the hospitality business, not the ownership perspective, which we've just talked about, but how the industry changed during the 90s, 2000s, and, and still now. And also the uh, overall real estate industry is changing in ways that embraces the disciplines and things you've learned in hospitality. So talk a little bit about that technology, customer service, and maybe the revolution in the business. Well, yeah, I want, I want to be careful because you could tread down this path and we'll be going for another yeah, four I hours. But, <laughs> but, I, but I would say, I would say, I hope this is a fair statement, but in my mind, I would suspect that technology has impacted the hotel business to a greater degree than just about any other form of real estate. And, and I say that because Ultimately, what maybe was the most impactful thing that happened to the hotel business was the growth of online travel agents. And so the ability of, you know, the myriad of companies, Booking.com, Priceline, Hotels.com, Expedia, all of this, all those different groups, as they began to figure out how they could market hotels and the fact that after the major downturn of 01 to 03, mm-hmm. they were flourishing we suddenly found that whereas in the past we had a fairly controlled environment around pricing and, and, and control of the customer, the entry of those groups at a point in time when the industry was to some degree weak and maybe not overly prepared for that type of a change dramatically changed how we related to our customer. While I would say that the balance there has been modified over the course of the last decade, and and that relationship is nowhere near what it was like in 03, 04, and maybe 05, the reality is is that we still are in a a situation in the hotel business where there are, when you look at it from the perspective of the owner, there are a lot of different companies that are all feeding off the building that we're responsible for both constructing and then maintaining. Uh, but, we, but, and they, but they're all benefiting from a variety of fee streams that the 
owner is ultimately paying. So I'd say that you know when you look at how the business was disrupted, you know that that was a huge impact on the business. Now you know it's not. I don't want to paint it all as negative because it's not. And the and in some ways I would say that at the same time that you had that sort of a negative impact in some ways. One of, I think one of the reasons why you've seen independent hotels flourish, why you've seen soft brands in some ways begin to develop in response to that was in part because it became more possible for an individual hotel to reach a broader audience because those OTAs existed. So it, it, it enhanced the flexibility of the business from some perspective, but at the same time, it still did introduce another player and, and another participant who is, who is extracting value from the building that we were responsible for building. Yep. And, and you say soft brand. That's a term I don't know, maybe boutique or one-off hotels. What, what's a soft brand? So a soft brand is the concept that you know, Marriott would have autograph, mm-hmm. uh, Hilton would have curio, and there's a couple of other derivative, derivatives of that. But it's essentially the concept of a hotel that has established an identity or wants to establish an identity that is distinct from any one particular, what we might view as a typical brand, but still wants to be part of a brand family and part of a, and and maybe more importantly, part of a frequent traveler program so that they can draw customers from that program. So the, a great example in my mind is we took a Four Seasons in Philadelphia and made it the Logan. So it was styled as an independent hotel, right. but it was a curio, a curio hotel, which meant that it sat within the Hilton brand family and was therefore could be, you could purchase rooms in that hotel by going to the Hilton website. Right. And owned, and owned by host. And did Host get rid of this? Uh, this is I should know this. Was the Marriott name still part of Host? Is the Host Marriott or just Host? No, it actually after we completed the Starwood acquisition, we had gotten to the point where the Marriott part of the portfolio was not quite below half, but getting close. Mm-hmm. So then the name of the company became Host Hotels and Resorts. Got it. We didn't come to la- kind of last question on this, which is when you took over as the CEO. How did your perspective and how did your role and how did your growth change? Yeah. Do you mean from a company perspective? Uh, partially company and partially Ed. You know, who did you become when you became CEO? If And it may have been exactly the same person, but often, you know, there's different words about this. But um, as the leader, there are different responsibilities, both on the org chart, but then where your head sits. Well, to some degree, what happened to the company also informs what happened to me. But I think what you've realized when you step into the CEO role is that you, you really have to try to figure out as much as possible how to work through the rest of the team and how to be even more focused on both dealing with the short-term issues that may come up, mm-hmm. but trying to be as thoughtful as you can about the longer-term direction of the company. I would also say that having been the CFO and have been so focused on so many different elements of, of the, you know, the, the numbers we were generating, the cash we were generating, what the balance sheet should look like, uh, while you don't forget about all of that when you step into the CEO role, you do have to recognize that you're, you become way more outward facing in that role. 
because you ultimately become the primary company spokesman. Mm -hmm. So certainly there was some material changes in the context of shifting to that. Now, what sort of accentuated all of that was that I took over in the last quarter of 2007. (laughs) And so there are already some cracks in the economy and in the financial markets. But really, realistically, as I was doing our first, you know, working with our team to develop the first budget for 2008, and beginning to look at what you were just seeing in the economy, it was clear that things were nowhere near as strong as they had been in 2007. And and I don't have to tell you that what happened in 2008 was just steady deterioration, and then that continued into 2009. And while we had a, you know, one of the best balance sheets in the industry, and certainly in the uh, hotel sector, I'd say we probably had the best balance sheet, everybody was impacted by the liquidity crisis that had hit the general financial markets. And so a big part of the challenge, you know, I would say I, in addition to needing to become more outward facing to the market to be able to explain what our strategy was for dealing with all of that, I also had to turn around and look inside and be thoughtful about how I was going to explain what we were doing to address our problems to a workforce that largely hadn't ever gone through a, a, a part of the cycle that was as dramatic as the one we faced in 08 and 09. Mm-hmm. In the hospitality business, cycles are amplified, I think, than, more than the rest of the real estate business. So when it hits the fan, it really does for you. Well, to put it into context, we lost 40% of our EBITDA from where we finished 07 to where we finished 09. Mm-hmm. And we didn't lose any of our debt. I think that says it all. So how did you make it through? And was that, that was the crucible of, of your CEO? Because at some point after that, you end up retiring, leaving, and going on to maybe Georgetown. You know, I think that we, we made it through in part because we were as prepared as we could have been going in. Mm-hmm. So, and what I mean by that is the balanced maturity schedule and relatively low leverage for the REIT sector, although not as low as where people are today. I think we were thoughtful and opportunistic. We bought some of, a, one, of our, one of the pieces of debt that we had that was our nearest term maturity was trading at a fairly big discount. And we were able to buy some of that in and reduce our exposure by virtue of doing that. So we did some interesting tactical moves. Uh, we didn't sell very much. You know, I think our thought was there was no, we were not in a position where we needed to be desperate and sell at a low number. So we did not. And we, we tried to position ourselves that on the recognition that it ultimately would turn up, the skies would get brighter. We actually looked to be aggressive in acquiring, would have loved to have bought more, but you know, there was not as much for sale as you might have hoped at that point in time. But we also started to get very aggressive about our capital investment. We had scaled back a bit at the beginning of the downturn and then quickly found out that pricing for construction projects was considerably lower than what we had seen before because of the fact that people just wanted to keep their crews working. So we accelerated our CapEx program and actually got a little bit ahead in terms of capital that we needed to spend. And then I'd say the focus over that time period was we were trying to explore the benefits of expanding internationally. So we grew more in Europe, which had started with the Starwood acquisition. We grew in Asia. We added some assets in Latin America. 
and you know I, I forget the exact number at this point, but I think we acquired about four or four four to five billion overall of hotels at, in the U.S. and some of those other markets. The same time we did that, we continued to sell. So as the market began to strengthen, we began to sell those assets that we felt were at the lower end of our portfolio. And all that was done with the goal of refining the number of markets that we were in with, with, with the expectation that we wanted to be stronger in the main markets across the U.S. And we wanted to be able to accentuate our understanding of the markets so that we can make better decisions around both the capital investment decisions we might make in those assets, as well as subsequent acquisitions that we might be interested in. Repeat that comment. It's a brilliant one. Accentuate your understanding of the markets you were in so you could do better business. Yeah, I think there's just, you know, so much of where our success came on the operating side came from really understanding the dynamics of each individual market and where could we, you know, how should we be thinking about pricing on the revenue side? How should we be, where could we begin to find the best standards in terms of what our expectations should be around expenses? And so by understanding a market really well, I think we were able to be fairly demanding, but with logic behind it with our operators in terms of what they, what they should be trying to hit in terms of expense levels. And, and given that the hotel business is so much affected by the capital that you have to put into hotels on a regular basis in order to keep them fresh and interesting to customers, by having a really good understanding of those individual markets and the product that we were competing with, I think we were well positioned to make, make thoughtful decisions about how much capital should be put in and what the nature of that capital should be. So... At some point, you retired or left the company. Talk about your why, what, where, how, and where you wound up. Yeah, I just made the decision at the end of 16 that you know, I felt like I'd accomplished what I could accomplish at host. It was clear to me that the, in the near term that the industry, while it might not necessarily go negative, that the level of growth was going to be you know, fairly anemic. And what that also meant was that you, you may or may not get some transaction activity done, but that you probably weren't going to do anything that would be particularly transformative just because of the stage of the cycle you were in. So I was really looking for a, a new challenge and, and to some degree a bit of a break too. So mm-hmm. um, by shifting over and going to Georgetown and, and becoming a full-time member of the faculty there, I, it was really a wonderful year and a half to be able to teach and, and, and to have the time to do it as well as I'd like to do it. But even more importantly, just the opportunity to interact with students and help you know, all, both at the undergrad and the grad level move along in their careers. And talk about your year and a half there and, and then how you came to the ULI opportunity. Well, I'd say that the, you know, Matt Cipher, who runs the program at Georgetown, is to me is one of the top educators in that field. So it was just fun to be with him and to work with him as he tried to build out the Steers program or the Steers Center for Global Real Estate at Georgetown. So a lot of what we were trying to do was our philosophy around how the education program should work there was really centered on bringing the practical and marrying that with the theoretical to give our experience, our students a fairly complete experience. Mm-hmm. So my particular class was on real estate investment trusts, 
And so I would teach the theory around that, but of course the assignments were designed to be more practical. But we also built at the undergrad level a investment club that invested in, in, in public equity and public debt securities. So it was great to take work with some of the undergrad students who were analyzing potential investments to help them develop a theory on, around whether or not they should, you know, which REITs they should pick to invest in. And, and it's just, it's great to watch young minds at work and, uh, and see the creativity and have an opportunity to influence that. I'd say the other big thing that's always, you know, I think, is helpful for anybody at the college or the MBA level is that opportunity to interact with a senior executive that's been active in a space that you're interested in. Because you can, I, I think I was helpful to a number of students and just giving them a perspective on what opportunities might be in a business and in, in certain instances be, be able to make a phone call or two to help that process along. Mm-hmm. Any comments of on the drivers of how real estate is attracting either graduate students or the interest in undergrads as compared to other industries today from the students that you were with? What, what's drawing people into our industry? And it's a broad industry, and you were in a niche of it, but what, what's, what's the draw? I think the draw is the one that has been around for a while, which is that it is, a, it is still a fairly entrepreneurial business, uh, it, ha- it lends itself to creativity, whether that's in how it's financed or maybe even more fun how it's built if you get into the development side. Uh, but I'd also say that a major plus in my mind for the industry has been the growth of the REIT industry and frankly the growth of the major opportunity funds too. The biggest change in the business from my perspective when I look at it today to when I started back in 1980 is scale. And so the size of our companies today compared to where they were back then, it's really two different worlds. And that fact that the business has changed in that way, I think offers even greater opportunity to folks to participate in that business and play at a fairly significant level in terms of the scope of responsibilities and the size of the, the portfolio that you can work with. And so I don't know that we're, the 80s, middle 80s may have been a more popular time to go into real estate because tech was nowhere near what it is today. But outside of that, you know, that particular discipline or that con- particular sector, I think the real estate business continues to be very attractive. And certainly based on the talent that I've interacted with through all my different roles, I'd say the quality of the people being attracted to it is just as high as ever. I think it's true. It's interesting. I talk all the time about the institutionalization of the business through the exact same timetable since we've been doing this for the same period of time. But alongside the institutionalization of the industry, there's still room for the small entrepreneur to go buy three deals and make a great living and create net worth. So they coexist in a comfortable way. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. We are a business that really does accommodate all those different perspectives. And, and at times what happens is that guy that starts off small ends up being fairly big down the road because, it's a, it, because of the ability to attract debt financing as readily as we can to our world. It makes it easier for the, for the successful entrepreneur to grow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about ULI, and I'll try to articulate a question. I'm intimate. Most of our listeners have some level of knowledge and intimacy of what the Urban Land Institute is, stands for, means, and where it's going. 
it's always easy for me to articulate what some of our real estate trade associations, and that's not the right word for ULI, but what they do. I know what NAREIT does. I know what the National Multi-Housing Council does. I know what ICSD does for its industry. But ULI has an umbrella and a think tank concept to it. So talk about identity, talk about meaning, talk about where it stands in this universe of organizations that we care about that help make our industry work well. You're exactly right in the context of saying that we are just a way more complicated organization <laughs> than any of the others that you reference. Uh-huh. You know, I think some of that is because we're a lot larger than any of those other organizations, but maybe even more importantly, we span a real estate person's entire career. And, and most of those other organizations are really where you go near the end or the, you know, the the end of your career, certainly as you've reached the higher heights of your career in our business. We're an opportunity, you can join our business as a student or join ULI as a student, become a young leader, grow within a district council, join a product council, start to move your way up into leadership both locally and nationally, and and ultimately maybe be on the global board near the end of your career. And I don't know that there's another real estate organization out there that is really designed as a place for you to reside your entire career in our business. So that in and of itself, in terms of satisfying that objective, mm-hmm. sets us apart from everyone else. You know, I, I think we are, as certainly a key element of what we are, is an opportunity for people to connect with each other, to share ideas, and to, to be mentored and to learn, and certainly to get deals done too. I mean, that First and foremost, we, we are a way for people to connect. But I think the opportunity for us goes way beyond that. Uh, and we have been with our advisory panels over the year that provide advice to cities or to locales or to, or to businesses as to how to better pursue their future from a real estate perspective. And the expertise that we can bring to topics like that are, is a critical difference between us and other organizations. Our Terwilliger Center that focuses on affordable housing or our center that focuses on resilience are all in place to allow us to leverage off of our members in a way where we become both a thought leader on a particular topic, but maybe even more importantly, we become the way to bring best practices to those topics. Because ultimately what I see is the strength of the organization is not just the quality of the people that work here which I have found to be very high. But more importantly, it's the ability to access all the work that our members are doing around the, really around the world and to bring that together in a way where we can share that with each other and therefore we can learn from each other. In a lot of ways we describe our goal is to ultimately make the built environment better. I, I think we're making good strides in that direction, but if I, were to, if I were to establish an overriding goal that I have during my tenure in this position, I want to see us be do have even more impact than we have today, and I feel pretty comfortable that we can accomplish that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting. I'm in so many conversations, particularly about uh, the housing affordability crisis, uh, both with Terwilliger Center and with our ULI councils, and in the rest of the business that I do. And we talk a lot about the challenges of development and the challenges of development not being resisted but supported by our politics and supported by the citizens of our cities as the cities are changing. And there's huge resistance to 
density, huge resistance to development, and somehow our industry is looked at as the problem, not the solution. And I keep wondering how the industry, not through others, but directly is able to change that perception of what we're doing and that we're trying to do it the right way. I think you're right that oftentimes our activities are viewed through a prism of how much money is that developer going to make or how much money is that investor going to make. Um, and certainly whatever we're, whenever we're participating, I mean, if we don't make money, we don't stay in business for very long. So that's clearly an important goal. But I think sometimes I think one of the areas where we can improve the situation from every perspective is to educate our public officials so that they better understand the trade-offs that we're facing in terms of pursuing a development. And and depending upon the topic, I think educate the general population around the same things. You know, certainly when you start to look at areas like affordable housing, uh, you know, density is one of the ways that you accomplish that. That's how you that's how you provide a home for a family. And I, so I, I I don't necessarily I don't know what all of the answers are yet. But I think as we as we work through the centers that we have or the other activities that we have, if we work through our distributed network of all of our district councils and national councils. I think one of the things we need to continue to be conscious of is that we are, are thinking about how we're positioning what we're identifying as best practices and put that in a light where it's not just the best practice for the developer, but we're also recognizing and explaining how that's the best practice for that community. Because ultimately, well, you know, well-designed developments should, in fact, add to the value of communities. And we just need to we need to continue to stress those points so that people understand that and see that. Absolutely true. And it's interesting if you resist the well-designed community, you wind up you know you you get a compromise answer that doesn't work as well as believing the inevitability that the density is going to occur. Now let's make it great. Well, you're exactly. I mean, if you think about just how you manage the density around a particular site, if the rules that you establish are too rigid. All you get is a rectangular box, and yet if you uh, if you provide for some additional flexibility around how that may be managed, you can ultimately create buildings that are more interesting, mm-hmm. and potentially end up with some green spaces within that that are way more attractive and are beneficial from a variety of different perspectives. So, two final questions. One is I, I find leadership a fascinating topic, and it always looks easy and. In some ways, from the outside, it looks easy and natural, and people are natural-born leaders, so they always should have been there. And as you describe looking backwards at, at your experiences, talk about a time when you, as a leader, stood at the precipice, and you didn't know you could do it, but you did. I, I think the, probably the best example of a situation like that was what we talked about a little bit earlier <laughs> when we hit the financial crisis. Because we were a, you know, we had a business that was in free fall mm-hmm. as, you know, we're the historic, the old line about the hotel business was that negative 1% RevPAR growth. So 1% decline in RevPAR in 1991 was the perfect storm of mm-hmm. bad things happening. That was the line that got used. 
RevPAR in 2008 and 2009 dropped about 22% mm. in the upper upscale segment. When you're dropping that fast, you can't begin to cut expenses to offset that decline, which is why our EBITDA dropped the 40% or more that I described earlier. So when you're, you know, you're running a company with a fixed amount of debt with assets that are like that, when you can't really predict what's happening, um, that, that's, that's just a very interesting and very challenging period of time to work through. And it's not, you not only have to problem solve from the standpoint of how do you make the right decisions around the company, but you also have to be really thoughtful about what that means for all the people that work there. And so even if I'm, even though I was completely confident about our ability to survive, I need to make certain that I spent time with folks that didn't have a comprehensive a grasp of the company to make certain that the rest of the company had that same level of confidence and would all continue to do the jobs that we needed them to do in order to make certain we were successful through that transition. I wouldn't say that I was ever terrified that I wasn't going to be able to do it, but I also recognized that it was going to be a different challenge from anything I had faced before, and I needed to be thoughtful about how I was going to accomplish it. Hmm. And it's interesting because you drew upon every bit of experience you had to date to make that work. You're exactly right about that. When I was having those conversations, <laughs> whatever numbers I was using, they were usually two weeks, two two months later. They were worse until it finally bottomed out. But but we well, but like I said, we I think we navigated through as well as anybody did. Last question: uh, If you had ten minutes, five minutes with a young person getting into the real estate business, thinking about a career, what would your advice be? I really feel, and I've described this to a number of different students over the years. I think in our business, building a broad foundation of experience in the real estate business and all the different segments of it was incredibly helpful for me later in my career. And so I typically will describe to students today or young people, young leaders today, that don't be afraid to look at lateral opportunity, what appear to be a lateral opportunity, because while it, you know, certainly everybody wants to climb the ladder, sometimes making certain that the ladder is bigger and broader will ultimately create that type of an opportunity, give you the basis to climb even higher in the future. And so, you know, that to me, making certain that you get a, a diverse series of experiences, whether it's product types or disciplines within our business, uh, I think that's what really positions you to be more, even more successful down the road. It just enables you to look at a problem from multiple perspectives. And if you only know one way to look at it, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail is a mm -hmm. common line. And you want to really have a full toolbox that you can access in order to make the right decisions and the right moves to be successful. Great advice. I'll, I'll tell you a ULI story and a thank you uh, for this. And one of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, when you mentioned advisory service panels, and, and you, you may know where this is going because my daughter works for you uh, as a young person on the advisory service panel team. And it's so interesting as you think about what ULI does and real estate can contribute. But once a month, she gets to go to a different city with a group of 10 or so real estate leaders from different disciplines across the country to sit in a room and think about a problem for a week in a local community. 
And she's had that experience with ULI now 20 times, I think. And I, I've heard of the Car- Harvard case study program, and but that's exactly what she has gotten to experience working for you at ULI in each of those programs. And it's amazing. Just thank you <laughs> for that. And thank you to ULI for bringing that to our cities because that's a wonderful, wonderful program. Yeah, I, I think that is one of the hidden gems of ULI, despite the fact that I believe we've done more than 700 of them. I, th- I think so many municipalities are missing an opportunity to, to bring world-class talent at bargain prices into their city to give them relatively dispassionate advice about how to solve a problem they're confronting. Hey, Ed, thank you very, very much. This was a great conversation and a lot of learnings uh, through your life story and your work story, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. Matt, thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices. If you like the episode, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to comment via our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.